Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, just before we get started, I want to give a huge welcome to all of our new Patreon members. So exciting that folks are starting to sign up. We're just ramping up this great new community. So all of the perks and the tiers are going to go out next week. Expect uh, the weekend reviews and the Zoom calls and all the community building stuff that we're going to be doing. That's going to start kicking in next week. But for now, we are so excited that people are signing up. If you'd like to join that Patreon community, patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Okay, let's get on to the show today. Uh, coal is the topic of the day. And it has been really just amazing to watch what's been happening and unfolding in China. There's been a huge demand in electricity over the past, say, month or so, and maybe a little bit longer from both factories and consumers that have triggered massive power outages in at least nine provinces, stretching all the way from Heilongjiang in the north, all the way down to Guangdong in the south. The situation, in fact, is so severe now that some analysts are even saying that the blackouts could impact China's economic growth that was set to rebound coming out of the pandemic. So it is widespread. Let's give you a kind of an overview of the situation. And I found this great clip from Channel News Asia's Beijing correspondent, Olivia Song. Uh, she's been covering the story. Now, there's a little bit of background because this is from a stand-up that she did outside on the streets in Beijing. So there is some noise, but you'll hear that she did a really nice job in summarizing the situation. Factories here in China have dealt with power curbs from time to time, but what's different now is that it's starting to affect people in their homes, and that has caused much discussion on Chinese social media, with many expressing frustration as well. Now, authorities have come out to try and reassure citizens that the power supply will be ensured, while also calling for an increase in coal imports and for domestic production of coal to be ramped up as well. Now, some of those imports are going to come from Africa, where Chinese buying of coal from both South Africa and Mozambique has gone up this week quite a bit. South Africa had already been increasing its coal supplies to China in the wake of Chinese coal buying halting from Australia. So the Australia-China dispute really impacted coal purchases there. China's then turned to South Africa. Now it's turning more to Mozambique, and it may even turn to other African countries, depending on how the situation unfolds. Now, if you're a little bit confused by the fact that China is now leaning so heavily on coal, just two weeks after President Xi Jinping told the United Nations General Assembly that Beijing is going to try and cap its carbon emissions within the decade, well, that's understandable. So I think for our discussions today, what I'd like to do is play you the clip from President Xi's speech at the United Nations General Assembly so we can use that as a benchmark. He said that cutting back coal is going to be a key part of what the Chinese are doing internationally, and he set a target for capping China's carbon emissions before the end of the decade. Of course, this is Chinese President Xi Jinping speaking in Chinese through an interpreter. China will strive to peak carbon dioxide emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. This requires tremendous hard work 
and we will make every effort to meet these goals. China will step up support for other developing countries in developing green and low-carbon energy and will not build new coal-fired power projects abroad. So at the time, that announcement that China would stop funding the construction of coal-fired power plants abroad was very big news. A lot of wiggle room in that statement, which we're going to get into today as well. Let me give you a little bit of a background in terms of where we are in terms of Chinese coal production overseas. About 40 gigawatts of new coal power plants in 20 different countries are right now in various stages of development. In all, 44 projects worth an estimated $50 billion could be impacted by Xi's announcement. So the ramifications are potentially enormous, especially for countries in Africa that really don't have many other sources of financing large-scale power projects the way that the Chinese were doing, say, for the Senghua power plant in Zimbabwe, which was to have been financed by a $3 billion loan finance package from the Industrial Commercial Bank of China. That's just one example. Also, Cobus, in your neighborhood, Chinese financing of coal in South Africa was quite a bit. So, Cobus, you focus on these global north, global south discrepancies quite a bit. Xi's announcement on coal and stopping the international financing or construction was welcome in the global north, but a lot of people in the global south had a much more tepid response because they're wondering, well, if it's not going to be coal financing from China, then where's the money going to come from to build badly needed power supplies? Yes, definitely. The um, I, I think that the reaction in the global south is kind of split between between governments who, who still are pretty invested in in a coal future, and then activists who are very very kind of worried about the impact of, of climate change on the global south. So, so they kind of, for example, small island states have been very vocal in in, in support of the ban. Um, so, some of the global south countries that are hit the hardest by by this change um, is Indonesia, Pakistan, Vietnam. Vietnam and Bangladesh, all of whom have, have had kind of significant coal funding from China. In Africa, South Africa and Zimbabwe are particularly affected. Um, there was a, a big uh, industrial zone being planned for the north of South Africa, um, which was a coal power plant that was su su supposed to be surrounded by a bunch of different factories, including coking and you know kind of other kind of metal smelting and so on um that project is now in doubt um and we also saw you know so some of the some of the similar kind of issues cropping up in, in zimbabwe so this is a very interesting moment um and you know it'll be interesting to see w how quickly that that those kind of projects get transferred to possibly Chinese-funded green projects, you know, and, and, and what the difficulties are in that transition. Well, again, that's a big if. There has been no formal statements coming from the Chinese government that there is a follow-up plan on green that an equivalent amount of money will be then put forth to solar or hydro or other renewable electricity uh, sources. So two very quick footnotes on what Kobus was saying. The Bank of China, almost immediately after Xi's speech said it would follow the government's example and it would not finance new coal projects overseas, but it did say that it would continue to support the projects that have already been approved. Also, just this week in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the massive, huge mining company, China Mali, they do copper and cobalt mining in the, the huge TFM mine there. They said that they are now exploring ways to use renewable energy uh, for that mining operation. Not sure if that's connected to Xi's announcement, but the timing does feel a little bit suspicious. So as you can see, so much going on domestically in China, in Africa, also in Asia as well. So we're thrilled to be able to get some perspective on this from Rishikesh Ram Bandari, who is the Assistant Director at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center's Global Economic Governance Initiative, and he's also a lecturer at the Party School of Global Studies. Rishi is an expert on climate finance and in international climate negotiations, and his research focuses on how developing countries mobilize finance in the power sector, so you can see why 
We invited him today to the show. His current work focuses on the deployment of renewable energy on the Belt and Road. Rishi, a very good morning to you in Boston, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So it's a confusing moment right now in terms of what China's doing vis-a-vis its coal agenda. So on the one hand, there's a lot of wonderful press after Xi's announcement that they're going to stop coal financing. For those of us in the space, not a huge surprise simply because for 2021, there has been no coal financing overseas. So China was already winding down this uh, this support that it was doing overseas, but certainly not domestically. Help us understand what the Chinese are doing domestically versus what they've announced internationally. Sure. So let me uh, say two things on this, right? The first one is that, you know, we all uh, have been fixated on that one particular line uh, from President Xi's uh, statement at the General Assembly. The second half of that line, which is about ending Uh, the building out of coal-fired power plants overseas, new uh, coal-fired power plants. If you look at the first half of that sentence, though, it's about vigorously supporting uh, the deployment of renewable energy, right? I'm paraphrasing here, of course. And so I think uh, we also, you know, need to pay attention to the the first half of that sentence. And, and, and of course, you know, like the coal part, excuse me, we also uh, need to, I think, await some further guidance in terms of how exactly... Uh, this is going to be made operational. Now, specifically on your question regarding this sort of a dichotomy between what China is saying in terms of its financing abroad versus uh, its uh, continued use of coal, um, you know, the fact remains that China is very much a a coal-based economy. Of course, you know, things are changing. Um, And so, um, which is why I think the... I think the you know the the correct framing I think of this is to ask when exactly uh, are the Chinese saying they will peak their emissions, um, and I think that you know it's in that context that I think we need to sort of examine China's sort of you know, domestic actions when it comes to uh, financing coal. So we we've seen we've seen this ban announced. We've also seen you know reporting that that there's of of still a very large number of, of, of Chinese coal plants not only being operational but but possibly new ones being being greenlit. From your perspective, what is the Chinese plan to 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 kind of move past the, the coal era and why aren't they just simply not greenlighting more renewables? That's a great question. And I think, you know, what we really have to I think focus on is um of course, there's you know many of these power plants that are in the pre-construction phase, but I think the term pre-construction really hides a lot of nuance in terms of the different stages these various um, coal-fired plants actually are in. And so I think to get a realistic sense of the ramifications of this announcement, we really have to look at you know these nitty-gritty details in terms of you know where do these uh, particular you know coal-fired power plants uh, really stand. But I think it's also important to keep in mind the overarching sort of picture in that, you know, if these uh, financing deals were a part of a larger, you know, uh, Chinese financing envelope, then of course, you know, it's not simply tied to the, the coal announcement, it's also tied to the larger debt profile uh, discussions. And so I think we need to keep both the project level details in mind and as, as well as the larger you know, sort of financial standing of that country uh, vis-a-vis China in mind. I'd like to get to the debt question, but I'll, I'll push that back a little bit. Let's kind of parse the words that she used, as, as you were, were alluding to. He was very clear, and I, and I don't think any of this happens by accident. I think the Chinese government, particularly when anything comes out of Xi Jinping's mouth, is very calculated and it's very selective in the language that it uses. He used the word build. He didn't use the word finance. He didn't use the word support. He didn't. He was very precise in the word build. Is your understanding then that the Chinese will stop building, but it may continue to finance or to support in other ways coal production in other parts of the world if it suits their interests? What was your interpretation of that word build? To me, I think there's been a, quite a lot of focus on on you know uh, the verb build. To me, I think the most important, you know, pieces or words uh, from that particular sentence were um, no new, right? So I think there's very clear emphasis on new being sort of, you know, an important uh, marker. And and the second piece, of course, being um, uh, being overseas and that it's, you know, a statement that is very much focused on the overseas aspect. 
And um, and the reason why, you know, I think this is partly also a translation issue and, and which is why I think we really need to wait for further clarity uh, from the government side, because I think we're basically, um, you know, we may be at risk of just projecting what we want, you know, from that announcement, um, g- given that there isn't a, um, a direct sort of a perfect translation between what President Xi said versus how we've been translating um, his his statement in English. You recently pub, co, pub, co-authored a, a fantastic paper um, looking at the the drivers for demand um, for for Chinese drivers of demand for Chinese coal powered plants mm-hmm. um, in the global south, particularly focusing on Southeast and South Asia. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why do these governments want to build coal capacity, considering that that now officially renewables are actually much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, great. So, first of all, a few things have changed, right? So, for example, Bangladesh um, has uh, now a sort of a very different approach. Uh, they're, th- you know, completely rethinking coal. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that many of these countries and the countries that we looked at there, uh, for example, you know, Bangladesh, they were going through a major, you know, energy crisis. And when we interviewed policymakers, their view was that large-scale power plants were the way to go because uh, it would allow them to ramp up generation capacity in a very expedient way and that they did not want the power shortfall to be impacting economic growth. And so they did not view renewables as providing the same uh, kind of scalable, you know, rapidly deployable um, energy generation source. So even though the costs have changed, I think the the perspective that policymakers have in terms of how they view the the ability of these technologies to get rapidly deployed, that's still very different. And I guess the second sort of related point on this is that even though the costs have definitely, you know, massively fallen for renewables, these countries often have energy plans that were written uh, quite a few years ago. And so the cost assumptions that are baked into those plans have not necessarily been fully updated yet. And so therefore, what we're seeing is that, you know, in real time, we're seeing the costs of solar and wind uh, fall, uh, you know, on a massive way, but then, uh, but then these energy plans have not necessarily caught up, right? So I think there's this need to go back and say, okay, if uh, renewables are indeed, you know, so much cheaper, then what does that mean for these energy mixes? So I think what we're seeing is partly a lag in terms of how these plans were written versus um, how fast the costs have actually moved. Just following up, in the paper, you also you also point out that in some cases, some the some legislation is set up to artificially keep coal cheaper than, than renewables. That in some cases, that that's that, that kind of policy or kind of a subsidy kind of policy or or you know kind of other kind of artificial weighting of prices actually is actually worked into into the national system um could you get an an idea of like why they would go to the trouble of actually doing that sure so let me give you a very concrete example um so pakistan for example guarantees a return on equity of um over 30 percent if you are using domestic coal right so pakistan discovered quite a lot of coal in this desert region called thar and, and they really want to promote the utilization of domestic resources. And so if you are a company that's saying we would like to exploit a local resource, the government is willing to provide a very high rate of return um, on equity in order to incentivize the exploitation of, of domestic coal. And so if you look at how they've set up the rates for, for local coal versus imported coal versus solar and wind, the rate of return for local coal is the highest. And for solar and wind, it's around 17%. So in some cases, it's actually half of what you would be earning compared to, you know, a local coal. Um, and so, yeah, so, so first of all, there is this desire to really um, use the resources that you have. And, and there's a similar sentiment, I would argue, in Indonesia as well, you know, which is also, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge coal, uh, you know, well-resourced country. Uh, they really would like to use, and, and it's actually high-grade coal, um, unlike uh, some of the coal that we um, have seen in Pakistan's case. And so they, uh, you know, would like to use this domestic resource. And the way they've set up the, the tariff structure um, is that um, it really does not favor renewables unless the cost differentials are massive. And so 
you know, if it's at the margins, they've set up the tariff structure so that coal continues um, uh, to get promoted just by the virtue of the way in which they've designed the tariff. So speaking about some of the resistance to renewables in countries like Vietnam, for example, where I am right now, one of the things that I've heard from stakeholders here is that because there is a dry season and a wet season here, we have brownouts quite regularly at the end of the dry season when rivers run low and there's simply not enough water to power the dams at full capacity. So what ends up happening is they have to import electricity from China or from other countries, or they have to then draw on, say, natural gas or other sources, mostly usually carbon. And so I think that's where some of the the reluctance comes to relying on renewables, especially for a country like this that is so rapidly expanding in terms of its industrial base, consumption is going up quite a bit. So I, th- I think that is that that's one concern that that's in some of these countries. Let me just quickly quote from your paper the top ten recipients. I'll give you five, uh, just because we won't go through the whole list. The top five recipients of coal-fired power finance from China. From 2000 to 2019, this might be very revealing some, for some of our audience. Indonesia tops the list at 9.3 billion. India is second at 7.7 billion. Vietnam is third with 7 billion. Pakistan fourth, 5.6 billion in financing over a 20-year period. And South Africa fifth at 4.5 billion dollars. So that's a lot of money. How much will these countries be impacted by the announcement, or is most of that from twenty from two thousand to twenty nineteen already committed, already done? Yeah. So the numbers that we have in that paper, those are already committed, right? And so, if uh, we want to look at the the impact of President Xi's announcement, it would have to be the the announced projects, the ones that are you know in the pipeline or being conceptualized. But the numbers that you read out, those um, are already you know. Uh, pretty much um, either up and running or they're in very advanced stages. But given that those are the top recipient countries are more planned, will they be impacted most? Is that what we should assume that they are going to be the most directly impacted by the Xi announcement? Or is it that they've already built their coal plants, they moved on, they're not taking any new money? Yeah, so so there's a mix. Um, there's a mix. And uh, countries, for example, Indonesia, you know, would definitely be uh, significantly impacted. Um, something that's, I think, also, um, you know, and we go into this uh, paper is uh, the role of domestic or host country environmental standards. And, and, and there we have seen, for example, India um, actually has, you know, relatively speaking to that group, has, has fairly stringent standards. And that has incentivized a particular kind of um, technology you know, import from um, from other countries. Now, um, now one of the reasons why you know Chinese uh, coal-fired power plants were so attractive um, to Indonesia um, is that you know if you have, for example, a bunch of small islands, you know you don't want to be building six hundred or you know more capacity uh, power plants, right? You would probably want to build smaller ones, and and China is the only one that's willing to supply a hundred or a hundred fifty megawatt sized coal-fired power plant. Um, the Koreans have pretty much stopped uh, doing that, as have uh, the Japanese. They're mostly focused on the larger scale ones. And so I think there's, you know, we have to look at the kinds of coal power that these countries are actually, you know, demanding and 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 how sort of the policy context, whether it's in terms of environmental standards or in terms of uh, their climate policies or their own reassessments like Bangladesh has done in terms of the favorability, the comparative favorability of um, coal versus um, other sources. I wonder if you could explain this kind of ranking of, of, of countries, you know, seen as supporting coal. I've seen, you know, obviously we've seen we've seen the numbers that, that China is the, the leading kind of, or what used to be the leader kind of funder of overseas coal capacity and Japan and Korea, as you mentioned, being high up there. But I, I also saw numbers from, uh, from Urgewalt, that um, which said that that American investors hold fifty eight percent of institutional investments in in the coal industry, and I've seen you know so you know kind of there seems to be kind of complexities in terms of of whether this you know of around government involvement and government financing versus private sector financing, and how how does that actually kind of complicate the, the this idea of who is the the biggest funder of of coal internationally? Great. Yes. So, you know, you exactly described it correctly, which is 
that you know most of these lists that we see when they you know rank governments is basically uh, the public finance aspect. Um, it does not cover the private side, and and if you are to include the private financiers for coal, the picture is going to look very very different, and um, and so. You know, China therefore uh, was the last major public, uh, you know, funder of coal-fired power plants. That does not mean um, international finance for coal is over. There's, you know, still private actors who are willing to, um, you know, fund this. And so I think if we want an, you know, a fully accurate picture, we definitely have to include private finance, which is why um, we've been saying the attention now really has to shift. Uh, to the the private financing channels uh, for coal. And that includes a lot of American financial institutions, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. So in that sense, there's a little bit of hypocrisy coming from the United States who have been very articulate and vocal in their criticism of Chinese funding of carbon energy overseas. This has been a topic of discussion the past couple of weeks. Just last week, the White House deployed a high-level delegation to go to Latin America as part of the first stepping out of the B3W, which is the Build Back Better World Initiative. Also, this week in Paris, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the OECD to talk about the Blue Dot Network. So there's all these initiatives which are intended to confront and challenge China's Belt and Road Initiative. Power and green energy is a very big topic of that. But yet, as we pointed out, American financial institutions are investing in coal overseas. And at the same time, you pointed out that the Japanese and South Koreans, who are part of these initiatives that the United States is trying to mobilize, are not coming through with funding for large-scale power projects in much of the global south. So I guess the question is, when we look at these initiatives coming out of the U.S., B3W, Blue Dot Network being two of them, is there any substance behind them that we can see, given the fact that we haven't seen any dollars come through, and 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 yet they still have been very critical of the Chinese? So again, I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese, but more to shine a light on the Americans. At least I think my understanding, right, is that there's a desire to focus your actions on things you can immediately control, and and that would be the public financing aspect. And I think that is what has sort of driven, uh, you know, the desire to sort of make sure that international public financing for coal uh, really is over. Um, I don't think uh, the story ends there. I think we're going to have to see uh, whether it's through the SEC, uh, you know, the Securities Exchange Commission, or through other means, the ways in which the, uh, the screws can be really tightened on, uh, on, on private financing for coal. But I think it was partly a sort of a, a tactical sort of a move to, you know, think about, okay, let's focus on what we as governments can really, um, you know, do um, immediately. And I think that's, you know, perhaps, uh, at least that's how I sort of, you know, understand the sequencing of this. One of the big issues around the funding of coal, coal power plants in the global south is the, the danger of these plants turning into stranded assets. So I was wondering what, what, what would have to fall into place for them to conclusively become stranded assets. So is, is, is that dependent on, on the, the implementation of some kind of global carbon pricing system? Or what, what are some of the other factors involved as well? Sorry, so when you say these plants are going to be stranded, uh, what exactly do you mean? Well, you know, kind of like the, that's, that's just a line that, that we've, seen so, we've seen so much, you know, kind of repeated that the, mm-hmm. about this danger of, of, of countries putting in this investment right now and then, you know, the right. them turning, the, these plants turning Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. So from that perspective, yes. I mean, if you're, for example, a country, you know, that is is going to be, you know, tapping into the European market um, as as your export uh, market, and and if you are a you know heavily coal based um, economy, and if the Europeans are saying now we're going to start taxing uh, your exports if you do not have an equivalent uh, carbon price. Um, then you know there there definitely is pressure right for you to shift um, and and therefore you know um, to perhaps uh, be in a situation where you're needing to retire these plants much earlier uh, than you anticipated when you arranged the financing and so so of course they're sort of stranding from you know um, uh, the ability not to actually you know make the full productive use of uh, your financial um, you know um, assets. Um, but I think there's also sort of, you know, 
um, the need to focus on how domestic policies, how you know your own domestic policies may actually strand uh, your own communities. And so as countries devise various climate policies, are they paying enough attention? Um, for example, in countries like India, where you know, um, coal is a very, very big part of um, the economy of a number of, of states in the heartland. And so um, if you're trying to shift away from coal, are you really paying attention, you know, to the needs of, of those communities um, or not? And I think only recently has the discussion shifted towards, you know, you can't just, you know, um, flip a switch and, and expect these, you know, communities to move to something else and that there has to be a far more considered and careful approach uh, for how exactly you know you would go about implementing your policies so that the the negative you know ramifications are are minimized as much as possible but I think that's the expectation of a lot of people in the US and Europe who have been again very critical of the Chinese for supporting coal in countries like India and Bangladesh some of the poorest countries in the world but yet as you pointed out it's not easy to make that shift and again going back to the financing question if they are to stop coal how do you backfill uh, with other financing to produce electricity at the scale that they need I mean I think a lot of people may not fully appreciate that the the power needs for a country like Bangladesh and, and India certainly are just absolutely enormous and may exceed some of the mm -hmm. renewable capacities right now. Help us kind of understand that. Sure. So let me actually say two things, right? One is, and this goes back to, um, it's not published yet, but some, you know, some analysis we've been doing, um, which is one, you know, major hesitation that a number of developing countries have in scaling up uh, renewables is uh, their lack of familiarity with the technology uh, when it comes to integrating these technologies to the grid. And, you know, often there's a lot of attention to funding the, uh, the generation sources, but not so much when it comes to thinking about, you know, can you actually use the power that these solar or wind farms are, are, are actually producing, right? So, so, so I think there's sort of a very clear need to focus on, do these countries have the transmission capacity to actually, uh, to be able to use the power that they're uh, generating? Um, so there's, I think, a need to focus on that. Um, but the second and perhaps the slightly more political, I think, point is that, you know, uh, now, you know, given President Xi's announcement, um, I think the stakes are even higher when it comes to things like the $100 billion goal that developed countries committed to. This is back in Copenhagen in 2009. And so, you know, of course, now there's going to be, okay, if coal uh, is no longer going to be publicly funded, well, uh, what does that mean for how we're going to get money for renewables? And I think it just ups the ante for um, for how much money you know we're we're seeing flowing um, through uh, you know a part of that uh, climate finance package. And I think it just sort of you know puts the pressure um, even more, and it sort of you know um, uh, further underscores the need to really actually meet that goal, which you know we're around twenty billion dollars short. Um, and uh, as of last year. And so, so I think it really sort of, you know, highlights the importance of making sure that um, countries know that there is finance forthcoming from other sources. Otherwise, uh, you know, if there is no funding for coal, then you're going to have a situation where countries continue to live, uh, communities, con you know, continue to live in energy poverty. They're not able to make the transition to um, you know, more value-added manufacturing or, you know, other kinds of economic activities that they desire to do. So, so yeah, so I think the, the political stakes have, have actually gone up quite a bit um, um, on the $100 billion question, um, you know, after uh, President Xi's announcement. But isn't there really a legitimate concern that if you're sitting in a country like Zimbabwe that your $3 billion commitment from ICBC to fund the Senghua power plant may be replaced by a $20 million promise to build a solar field? Oh, of course. Um, of course, which is why, you know, it's... Um, See, and the sad, uh, you know, I think part of this is that 100 billion is not this, you know, is nowhere near the scale of investments uh, the developing world needs, right, to meet it, to meet its energy needs um, and to build climate resilient uh, societies. And so the scale of financing is a lot, uh, you know, is, is orders of magnitude greater. And so uh, but but because of the political context, we're so you know, fixated on the 100 billion dollars. But but of course, you know, there um and, and this is where I think, you know, one would hope that in an ideal world, 
the Chinese and the Americans would join forces and would be able to offer a much bigger uh, sort of a global, um, you know, clean energy financing deal that would um, make fundamental shifts uh, on the ground for these countries. But but we haven't seen that kind of conversation happen at all. Um, we're a few weeks away at the moment from, from the COP26 summit that's going to happen in Glasgow. Um, so I was wondering what you think, I mean, it's always difficult to, to ask people to to predict things, but, you know, I, you know, do, do you have a, a sense that there'll, that there'll be kind of significant developments happening there, particularly in relation to China um, and, and this issue of, you know, rollout of, of, of energy infrastructure? So when it comes to the the negotiations itself you know i think the the you know the place where perhaps we should be putting the attention to is you know how uh, quickly how early does china want to peak its domestic uh, emissions and because the external financing the overseas financing you know is simply you know one piece of this larger you know set of commitments uh, that china would have and so i think to understand um, how ambitious China really um, is being. I um, mean, you know, right now the pledge is for around 2030. And so is China willing to bring that forward or not is, I think, something to watch uh, specifically regarding China. Is that realistic, do you think? Um, yes. I mean, th- you know, there are multiple studies that have um, been able to show if China is willing to engage in a number of power sector reforms, for example, that you could bring the uh, peaking uh, year forward. Um, but, um, but, you know, are they, you know, willing to sort of put this down on paper or not is, 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 you know, a different question. Very quickly before we go, how seriously should we be taking this, all this rhetoric about the green belt and road? It, it, there's parts of it which look really interesting and parts of it feel like it's just greenwashing. And, and I'm not really sure what's what. Is this something serious that the Chinese are doing overseas and, and or something that we should focus on? Yeah, so I would say it's, um, it's, it, it's serious. I think the focus, you know, at the end of the day really has to be on uh, these host countries because if they do not have the policies in place, if they do not explicitly and consciously incentivize the building out of renewables, then... China can do so much uh, in terms of the supply of climate finance, right, or green finance more generally. Um, but if these countries are not willing to also, you know, uh, make a step change in how they themselves think about renewables as a part of their energy mix, then uh, any initiative, any international initiative is going to have limited traction on the ground. So I think it's actually um, on these countries, and you know, and and you know, we've uh, done analyses uh, and we've uh, to show that you know, if or when these countries do offer incentives, um, international investors, including Chinese investors, do actually match uh, you know those incentives and do go into those countries. Um, but can these countries continue to provide the policy environments that would be conducive to the the significant scaling up of renewable energy or not? Is something that these host countries, you know, alone um, can really answer. You know, it's 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 very easy when when one reads, you know, in, in what a kind of a dire position we're in, um, to completely lose hope. So, as someone who's immersed in these in the in this data, kind of like on a day to day basis, how do you manage it mental health wise? Like, you know, and and they could. Do you maintain, do you kindle it like a, a flame of hope, you know, kind of mo- moving forward? And all, you know, kind of, yeah, you know, kind of, how, how, A, how, how do you process all of all of this kind of information on a daily basis? And B, how optimistic are you, about, you know, kind of moving forward? No, that's a, that's a great question. So I'm actually pretty optimistic um, because I think the, um, the amount of, you know, traction that we have seen um, over uh, the last, you know, uh, so many years is actually pretty fundamentally different. Um, I was just teaching, you know, earlier today, and and there's this game called Stabilization Wedges. If if you know, I, I highly recommend um, checking that out. And and this was, you know, this game was designed to sort of figure out what technologies you would use to stabilize uh, carbon emissions. And and you know, when that game was made, the focus was on stabilization. We have now moved into a net zero conversation. And so I think um, the rhetoric has significantly shifted. Of course, rhetoric shifting alone is not enough. But I think without the rhetoric shifting, you know, we're not going to see the action at all, right? So I think um, uh, we're 
hopefully going to see, you know, these these pieces fall in place. And, you know, and, and I think just, you know, last week, a number of countries signed this powering past coal announcement. So I think we're, you know, we're, we're you know, slowly seeing some of these pieces fall in place. But of course, you know, um, we also have to uh, be very clear, right, that this is not an easy thing, nor is it a short term thing. It's it's a, you know, long haul uh, sort of a process. And I think we just have to, or at least the way I understand it is that, you know, this is a very long term thing that um, that we need to be committed to, and that it's it's going to be difficult to just, um, uh, or, you know, if we only react to immediate things that happen um, around us. I guess I'm surprised that you're as optimistic as you are, only because if the United States and China don't cooperate together on these things as the world's two largest polluters, it seems very difficult to see how there's going to be an emerging consensus that will come out of all of this in order to tackle the scale and scope of the problem. And it, there's no way that under the current circumstances that the United States and China are going to cooperate. They're, they're just That's not the, the kind of dialogue. So I, I'm encouraged that you're positive. I think that's fantastic. You're leaving us on, a, on, a, on an upbeat, positive note. Rishi Bandari is the assistant director at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center at the Global Economic Governance Initiative there. He's also a co-author on the paper that is excellent. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Banking on Coal, Drivers of Demand for Chinese Overseas Investments in Coal in Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Again, understanding those drivers of demand is critical to understanding this whole issue. Uh, Rishi, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, probably my uh, Twitter handle, um, which is Rishi R. Bandari. Um, I can send you the, the information. Sure. I'll put that in the, in the show notes as well so people can follow you on Twitter. And again, we really appreciate your time and we're looking forward to following up with you after COP26. Great. Great. Thank you so much. The most important takeaway from Rishi's comments and the paper is understanding the demand from the global south. And that's a part of the conversation that I feel is missing when I hear people like Anthony Blinken talking about B3W and uh, the, the what's the Blue Dot Network. I mean, there's so many of these networks now, I can't keep track of them. But it is they talk about how China is exporting dirty energy, and it's there's no doubt that they're that the Chinese have been doing that. I mean, by the billions of dollars. But there is no discussion about the demand side. And I think that goes back to what you were writing about in our newsletter this week in your column, when you talked about how the U.S. and Europe are looking at the global south from such a high level, and you were talking about in the context of Africa, but it certainly applies to other regions in the global south, that everything looks hazy and murky. And that attention to the demand side, what the Vietnamese are thinking, what they need, what in Bangladesh and in Indonesia they need, and do they have the capacity to do what B3W wants to do? So again, is the infrastructure there, the policy framework there, the technical talent and I'll tell you, in a country like Vietnam, it's here, but it's not. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. It's so confusing that it's not a simple answer. Yeah, it's one. One then has to engage with with the kind of nature of the particular elite in the country, right? Because because the the situation is, you know, in, in global south countries, it's you you don't kick out engineers behind every bush, right? So so the people who have these kind of qualifications and who are able to 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 make these policies tend to be a, a small elite, and they tend to then frequently have set ideas, and their set ideas tend to tend, tend to be very influential in their in their particular policy environment. So changing thinking about how renewables can be integrated, as Rishi pointed out, um, being very practical about how how you're going to be dealing with the existing kind of in, in infrastructure that's already there, the, the existing grid, for example, is really key. Um, and so kind of knowledge exchange is, is, the, is one of the most important issues. So another way to look at this, and I think this is really important, and it was reminded to me by Onye Nkuzi. Onye Nkuzi is this amazing Nigerian Twitter user. Now, that's his pen name. No one knows his real name. But he pointed out in the discussion about coal that in a country like Nigeria, where there is still a lot of wood burning, that coal is actually an upgrade from wood burning in terms of pollution. And also because of so many people depend on wood burning stoves and wood burning for heat as well, they are 
ripping down forests as well. So there's an impact both in terms of the emissions, but also in terms of the deforestation. So in this case, coal would be an upgrade over wood burning. And that gets to the point that one person's horrific pollution is another person's upgrade. And when you look at this from the global south up to the global north, it looks very different than from the global north looking down to the global south. And so what's celebrated in London, Paris, Brussels, and New York in a place like Nigeria, as Onye Nkuze pointed out, is met with a lot of apprehension. That's true, um, and, and I see his point. But at the same time, the Global South is also the home of leapfrogging, right? And Africa being particularly famous for, for technological leapfrogging, um, you know, which is, which is kind of shorthand for the idea of, of jumping from, a, from, from a, a, a quite kind of old-fashioned kind of technology into the newest technology without all of the intervening kind of stages. So, you know, so for example, you know, people who only have landlines jumping directly into 5G, you know, um, so and 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 that is Nigeria. You know, like it, it's a country that both is very technologically advanced, like a lot of fintech happening there, and at the same time has a very large population of very poor people who still need to burn wood to to to, to keep warm. Um, and that is that's very true in South Africa as well. It's true right across the global south. So that kind of complexity needs to be taken into account, and one one can't necessarily force these countries to to go through a conventional kind of electrification process which is why i think a lot of them have to be thinking about a lot of different solutions at once including things like if you know like like do you really need to extend the entire electricity grid or is it possible to have some kind of microgrid or like you know kind of small scale solar solution in order to just fill a gap you know, kind of, and then you can kind of get to to kind of grid integration later, for example. You know, so so those kind of pragmatic choices have to be have to be front and center, and they have to be supported. And I think that is one of the problems because I think small scale ad hoc pragmatic choices are difficult to support, um, and they tend to be particularly kind of difficult to support when you're also dealing with with global north countries kind of massive development budgets. So you know, so 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 frequently. The, the the very fact of the difficulty of, of rolling out a project or you know doing doing the kind of due diligence for a project tends to favor large scale conventional projects and when when you're playing in that field then these kind of established interests like for example like Rishi's example of, of Pakistan wanting to use its own coal reserves start playing a really big role you see that in South Africa which is has similarly has large coal reserves and politicians who are hell bent on using them um, because because getting their hands on their own on the country's mineral resources was such a fundamental story of the kind of anti-apartheid struggle you know for, for decades and decades so one has to both take those political realities into into account but at the same time be flexible enough to to support many different solutions at once okay so to that point this is where i'm going to get very excited so there's a story that we covered a couple of months ago let me look at the date on the story oh i'm dating myself 2019 (laughs) (laughs) when you cover these stories as much as intensely as we do it all blurs together but this goes back to 2019 it's out of the Bui Power Authority in Ghana, and they're doing something called uh, small micro hydroelectric. These are 45 kilowatt hydroelectric power stations that have a solar power complement on it. So when the rivers are running low, the solar kicks in to boost out. And then when the cloud is is covering up the, the solar, then the hydro kicks in. And so they complement each other. They're small scale. They cost $400,000. Imagine that, $400,000. Not billions, not millions, $400,000. Very exciting program. This is actually being done in conjunction with China. So it's the African Development Bank, the Small Hydro Power of China Company, and also the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. And that, to me, is these very innovative solutions. So if we can start thinking small, not like the Grand Inga Dam in the Congo, which is these massive things that create enormous debt, also have tremendous environmental impact, but thinking more small solutions. Small power might be the solution rather than big, massive types of infrastructure that we've begun accustomed to, but right now the world can't afford to pay for. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 really it's really important, you know, to it's it's frequently it's really important to think small. But but you know it, it's frequently it's 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 small things can be much harder to finance than large things. 
you know, particularly if you're talking about a, a kind of a, a rollout of many of them. And 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 there's a kind of inertia in in funding that that I think you know sometimes makes these projects harder. But you know, we're going to have to overcome all of these problems. So the problem is also on the funding side then too, and and that's something we should be looking at. But that's very difficult to address in cities like Washington and Brussels, where the the bureaucracy is deeply, deeply entrenched, where a lot of this funding comes from. Then also, whether it's coming from New York or London, in terms of the private sector, the funding requirements can be quite demanding. And these micro or small power projects don't generate the kinds of returns that private investors may find appealing. So you're right, it does present challenges. But I do like the creativity of trying to fill some of the energy gaps with smaller solutions that may be more nimble and easier to execute. Okay, let's leave the conversation there. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have this great community that's starting to take shape over on Patreon. Uh, it's it's just, we, we did a video today to talk to our uh, our new members, and it's really exciting. It's neat, and people are starting to interact with one another. So we'd love for you to come over to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we've got three tiers there. We even have some swag. You can get a coffee mug in the $20 tier, but we're going to be doing monthly Zoom briefings. We're giving out a weekly week and week and review uh, so lots of cool things that are going to be there also one-on-one sessions that we're doing if you want to talk about china africa issues so all sorts of cool things we're really excited about our new patreon community go check it out once again patreon.com slash china africa project and of course if you want to subscribe to the china africa project to get the newsletter and access to the thousands of articles that are on the website in the archives you can do that just by going over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com. <laughs>